0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at emmanuelag.com. You know, from time to time, something happens that is so significant, it becomes a permanent landmark on a historical landscape. You know, when I talk about earth-changing things, Things like that you can mark a time that what life was like before that event and after something changed. You know, things like wars are obvious, right? You know, wars, that conflicts of nations, borders redrawn, uh, people suppressed, you know. Natural disasters, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes, these kinds of things. Big events that change how you will live in an area. Things that you can say, oh yeah, that was... I remember, what was it, the blizzard of 96. We talked about that for years, you know. Not that that changed our life, but it was so significant. It became a landmark, a point in history that you could look to. How how many of you guys remember life before 2020? (laughs) (laughs) Pandemics change. (laughs) Your, your life, how you live. I don't know what life's going to be like, you know, next year when we get through this thing. I hope it goes back to normal. I really do. But still, these things change the landscape of history. I actually remember a time before 9-11. You know, I was doing some traveling and, uh, everything changed. I mean, it felt like a lot of freedoms were just ended. You know, we had in, we introduced new government agencies to kind of keep track of domestic terrorists. And, uh, I, you know, for those of you who are sensitive, I felt a spiritual change before and after 9-11. Something that changed, something shifted major. But, you know, it doesn't always have to be negative. Sometimes new technologies and new inventions will cause you to, you know, a point where you remember. Like, how many of you guys remember life before cell phones? It was great, wasn't it? It was so great. I remember, you know, um, I was younger and I remember a time when my parents went out and they never came back and they never came back. We didn't have a cell phone. We just didn't worry about them. We figured they'd get back when they would get back. Now it's like, well, where are they? Oh, I don't know. Who's calling? And then if you don't get them, you like freak out, like immediately, and you start calling, right? We're so used to it. We expect everybody to be available right now. It It really changed the way we live. Um, how about microwaves? <laughs> Some of y'all are probably smart and don't use microwaves, right? <laughs> but you know, if you're using it just to reheat your own um, Krispy Kreme, it's probably not really. The microwave's probably not your problem. But uh, I remember, you know, left night at our house was, a, you know, a four burner stove with about five pots on it. You know, and you put a little water or milk in it and you heat them all up. And you have all those pots to wash afterwards. We didn't stick it in a microwave and that was it. Life before microwaves. How did we ever survive? I remember our first colored TV. It really didn't change life that much because we still only had three channels, and we'd have to <laughs> go outside and turn the antenna and point it, <laughs> probably cable TV would have actually been more life-changing, right? I don't think I've ever had cable TV, though. Look, the internet, there's one. Internet absolutely changes the way we get information. You can't get any information anymore, except online. <clears throat> And even that's just the same thing like copy and paste it, copy and paste it. It's the same thing over and over. But it changes the way we live. GPS. How many of you guys like GPS? <laughs> I, I have um, I was thinking Josh, I was thinking about when I learned how to fly, we didn't have GPS. It was back when Loran seat C I think was just coming on, um, which was for navigating, and, you know, I've got more technology in this phone right here than any airplane I've ever flown. I'm sure it's not the same for him, but for me, I mean, I learned how to fly with a, a map and a, and a a ruler and a stopwatch. Dead reckoning, we called it, and uh, it worked. But GPS, man, tells you exactly where you're at. Driving your car, I found out the more I use GPS in my in my car, the stupider I get. <laughs> because I'll go to a place once. Normally, if you give me directions, then I'll remember it. But if I follow the GPS, I won't remember it. I'll have to use the GPS every single time I go there. It'll take me about six trips to learn it, where the other way I learned once, right? So things change the historical landscape. Personally, in your personal life, right? Christian, i got to tell you, having kids will change your life. It will absolutely change your life. Getting married changes your life. There's different things that are just absolutely Life-changing. You know, when you're in school, you lived a certain way. Then you graduate school, you hopefully, hopefully you get that job, and now life is uh, different. You want it to be different. You don't want to live like you're a student forever. You're looking for change. Some changes are good. Some changes are bad. But there are still certain events all through history that you can use as a marker, and you can see what life was like before them and what life was like after them. Well, from heaven's perspective... There have been a few of these major, major events that actually have shifted the course of history. They've actually shifted the way that people relate to God. I think probably the first big event that we would be aware of from the revelation of God through the scriptures would be the creation of man. When God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, he breathed his spirit breath into his nostrils and he became a living being. Adam was made in the image and in the likeness of God. He was so much like himself that if you would search for all creation, there was no other being in heaven or in earth that you could compare man to other than God. You know, you could say, like, if you're trying to describe a zebra or something to your kid or something, you'd be like, it's like a horse with stripes. Right? You can can make those comparisons. What's a cat? Well, have you ever seen a tiger? It's like a little miniature tiger with the big tiger ego <laughs> you know that's, that's a cat for you um what's what's a what's a shrimp you want to eat a shrimp what's a shrimp well it's just basically a cockroach that lives in the ocean right? <laughs> it's not absolutely disgusting <laughs> yeah um, or what's a? Uh, if you live in the city i got to i got to do an internship in new york city for a while and we had pigeons all over the place if you had to describe the pigeon you just have to say it's per- basically it's just a Pretty much a rat with wings, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but there's all these, uh, let me get these things. I mean, they are flying today. I don't know why. Let I me mean, bend Must have bent them the wrong way. Anyway, there's all these different uh, ways that we can compare things. But if you were looking around for something in creation to compare man to, the only thing you could compare humans to is God himself. And I know secular, Scientists will say, well, you no, know, they shared, you know, certain genomes or whatever. I don't know the language, so if you're a scientist, I'm sorry. But the with, with chimpanzees or whatever. But see, God never made a chimpanzee and breathed his breath into a chim. But he breathed his life, his spirit, his breath into the man. You can't ignore the intangible, the invisible part of man. There is no other creature in creation that is closer to God than man. Human beings. So here we are. God actually walked with Adam in the garden. He was so much like, this is just my imagination. If an angel was standing there and God and Adam walked by, the angel would probably be like doing a double take (laughs) to see which one was which. Adam was so much like God. History had just been made because a being that had never existed before and was now breathed and spoken into existence. And he was like God. But what happened? Adam sinned. He messed it up. And that became the second major thing in history. Adam sinned and now God cannot relate to him in the same way. It changed the whole trajectory of the way in which humans and God could relate. Because before they could walk Together in the garden. They could talk face to face. And now man is driven out of the garden, away from the life of God. Everything changed that day. So what does God do? He starts working, starts going to work to redeem the man. He picks one man, Abraham, and says, I'm going to build a nation through you. And from your descendants, I'm going to work in the earth. And I will bring salvation through one of your descendants. And Jesus came. Descendant of Abraham, and he began to work salvation. The death, God, uh, Jesus came as the God-man in the authority of that original Adam. And his death, resurrection, and ascension once again brought that long-awaited change because Jesus absolutely changed the way that mankind, humankind, once again, relates to the Father. Everything is different with Jesus. It's one of those big historical earth changing events Jesus' death and resurrection because in his death he carried away our sins and he destroyed the works of the devil it's a good thing in his resurrection the new creation has begun and we are made right with God it says we are justified by his resurrection in his ascension he received from the father an eternal kingdom that will endure forever and he became the head of the church which is us his body which fills all in all Everything changed. Today, what I want to do, is start a study in the book of Acts. And uh, I'm not going to go through the book of Acts verse by verse, but what I want to do is just kind of cut through it for a couple of weeks and look at some of the major themes in the book of Acts. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, five of them are are historical. If you guys have uh, participated in January, the 21 days of prayer and feasting, where we were quote-unquote feasting on the Word, we were reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. That's the New Testament historical books. Of those five books that are historical, the rest are letters primarily, and then one's the book of Revelation. Of those five historical books, four of them deal with Jesus' life before the cross only one deals with the acts get it acts of the church after the cross so that is the book of guess acts the book of acts so acts actually deals with the ministry of Jesus after he ascended to the father the book of acts is really unique not only in the new testament but in all the scriptures the book of acts marks the beginning of life in this new era i would say new age but i don't want to sound like a new age person they still they stole it from us it's actually a new age The Bible calls this time period we're living in the last days or the end times. They begin in the book of Acts. So Acts introduces the beginning of life in this new era under a new covenant. Acts marks the invasion of the new creation and the expanding of God's kingdom on earth. Remember Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Acts is about that happening. The kingdom of God has invaded with Jesus and it is expanding on the earth. And Acts marks that. The book of Acts introduces the Christians. The Christians, the Christians are a new race of people, if you will, a new creation people who've not existed before. Think about that. Before, before Acts, there were no Christians. That's so why they were first called Christians in Acts. Early on they called them, called them followers of the way. But the book of Acts marks the beginning of the life of Christians. It marks the fulfillment of the promise that God would put His laws in our minds and write them in our hearts. Remember that? That He would take our stony heart and give us a heart of flesh. And He would teach us Himself. It says, in, as you go on, it says that You won't have to teach each other because they will all know me. you have a direct relationship with the Father. This new Christian life begins in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the beginning of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Remember Jesus? Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. The book of Acts tracks the beginning of the fulfillment of that. And finally, the book of Acts is the story of the church Stepping out and doing and beginning to do those greater works that Jesus began. Remember Jesus said, I'm going to the Father. Not only will you do the works that I'm doing, you will do greater works than these. And the book of Acts marks the beginning of that. But here's what's really cool. The book of Acts is actually the introduction to our story. This is our story. If you search the whole Bible, you know, you look through the Old Testament, and you know, well, okay, I'm not Israel. I wasn't given the law. Um, I'm not Adam. You know, was one-off person there. You know, I'm not an Old Testament prophet. You know, so it's all, all the Bible is for the church, but not all the Bible is about the church, right? You come up to the New Testament and Jesus comes and he comes to Israel and there's the disciples, but they weren't born again at that point. They weren't new creation. So the only person you can really relate to in the Gospels would be Jesus In the sense that you were born again and made like him. But when you get to the book of Acts, that's our story. That's where we live. We are still living. Well, When you get to the end of the book of Acts, it really feels like almost a, you know, it just kind of ends up in the air. like 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 he was going to write another chapter or something. Or he needs another chapter to finish it. You know, and I think one of the reasons is because it's still being written. We're still living out the book of Acts. It's our, it's our story. From heaven's perspective, nothing major has happened. You know, those major shifts. Nothing major has happened since that day of Pentecost when God sent the Holy Spirit. In other words, He's still relating to us, to me and you, in the exact same way that He was relating to those apostles in the early church. There's not a time where that has ended. There's not a time where something else came and happened that would change that. It's the same, same story. So we are presently living in the time period that actually began with the book of Acts. The next thing on the calendar for God is what? Jesus' return, right? So we are living since the beginning of the book of Acts through today in what the Bible calls the last days or the end time. Now, the book of Acts was written by Luke, who also authored the book of, guess, Luke, the <laughs> Gospel of Luke. is a two-part. You can think of it as a two-part book. Luke uh, dealt with um, Jesus' life on the earth. Acts dealt with Jesus' life at the right hand of the Father, like I said. Now, Luke, is interesting, he was not an eyewitness. Um, some people actually think he was a, a Greek, not a Jew. Um, there's evidence, some people say he was a Jew, not a Greek. It just depends on who you want to read and who you want to believe. But it's important to know he was not an eyewitness of Jesus. He didn't see the resurrection. He was not one of the twelve. But he was a companion of Paul, and so he would have hung out with Paul and Mark and all those guys. And what he was, and this is so interesting, he was an investigator who, he carefully searched out everything from the beginning. He actually went and interviewed people, met with people, and uh They say that all of the book of Mark, for instance, is included in Luke. So Luke would have been, uh, would have used Mark as some source material. He searched this out. He has got narratives that deal with prophecies that happen when, at Jesus' birth. You know, at Christmas time, when you start looking for the stories, you go to Matthew and you go to Luke and Luke has got, you know, him going to the temple and the prophecies of the people over him. He really searched it out and presented it in an orderly fashion. Both of the books, Luke and Acts, are addressed to a man named Theophilus. If you'll go with me, let's let's go to Luke chapter 1. Because the the books, like I said, are taken together. So the book of Luke will be the introduction... The introduction in the book of Luke will also be the introduction to the two volumes set. Let me say it like that. So Luke chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Since many have undertaken... To compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay, so he's saying this story about Jesus was actually handed down to us from those at the beginning who were the eyewitnesses. So they had a tradition, probably an oral tradition, a way of teaching and sharing the facts about Christ as they went out and preached the word. But it's been handed down. But what Luke wanted to do was to investigate himself and write an account. That's what he says in the next verse. It seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in an orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now this character here, Theophilus, little is actually known about him. Evidently he had been taught about Jesus, so he at least heard the gospel. Very likely he was a Christian, And the name is interesting. It actually means friend of God. Theo, God. Philos, like phileo, you know, brotherly love. Friend of God is what it means. And because of that, some people speculate and they say, well, maybe he stands in place of all those who are friends of God. And so it wasn't addressed to a real person. I think that probably is a good perspective to have today because he's not around today. But the fact that he addresses him as most excellent, Theophilus Kind of indicates that it was a real person, not just a real person, but also a person of high standing. A person of rank. So both books are addressed to that. Look at Acts chapter 1. I'm going to go there in my Bible because we're going to just look today. Like I said, I'm not going to do verse by verse through Acts, but today I want to deal with just the introduction. The first 11 verses in the book of Acts because they kind of set the stage and set the trajectory for the whole thing. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So again, we see it uh, addressed to Theophilus. And we see here very clearly that this is a book That is a continuation of, I mean, he says, in my first account, that's referring to the Gospel of Luke, which, about all that Jesus began to do. And so the implication is here is that he's going to continue speaking about what Jesus is continuing to do now after he was taken up. I don't have it on this, on the, um, I didn't load it, I thought about it late, but go with me. Hold your place in Acts, don't lose it. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. I want to read something there. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord... It was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them by both signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Okay, this is what is happening in the book of Acts. Look back at verse 3 right there. This word was first spoken through the Lord. So this gospel of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom originates with who? The Lord, with Jesus. And it was confirmed by those who heard. Who would that be? Who were the eyewitnesses? Who walked with Jesus? Who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection? That would be the disciples. <clears throat> right? And then, and it says, God also bearing witness with them by both signs and wonders, by the various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So this is what Luke would have heard. The gospel that originated with the Lord and was preached to him, and this is what we see in the book of Acts. The gospel that originated with Jesus is preached by his followers, and God's confirming it with signs and wonders. Do you remember in the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world, and he gives them a list of things to do. and He that believes these signs will follow the believers. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. Now what's so interesting about the book of Acts is this the work is so firmly fixed in the events of world history. There are so many references to specific people and specific places in both Luke and Acts that that it, God uh, Luke takes the supernatural things that God is doing through Jesus and the church and fixes them right there in the middle of secular history. Listen to some of these examples. In the book of Luke we see that Jesus and John, they both had supernatural births. They were prophets. Jesus was, you know, obviously super, supernatural, but John shouldn't, she should not have been able to conceive John. It was a miracle as well. And they were both born, listen to this, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, and during the reign of Caesar Augustus, while Corinius was governor in Syria. You see how he puts these, the landmarks, these markers in there that places this supernatural event right in a real place in world history. Then we get to the book of Acts where Christianity is spreading all over the Roman world and this is what this is when it happened primarily during the reign of the emperor Claudius when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia when Felix and Festus reigned in Judea and Anna, Ananias was the high priest in Jerusalem. You see, secular historians have gone back trying to discredit this and saying that he can't have all these details right but the accuracy of this is one of the things that proves that Luke was accurate in his history, that he researched this. These names, these people really existed. They were really the governors of these towns. Over and over, they find the cities that Paul visited throughout the book of Acts. They excavate them, and they find out that, yeah, it's exactly what Luke described. And so what's so neat about this, it establishes the supernatural and miraculous nature of the church solidly within the framework of secular history. And you know, that's where the miraculous actually belongs. Right there in the middle of the world. Right there in the middle of secular history. Jesus came to a real world with real people who had real problems. See, we, we have this idea that, you know, religion sometimes should be this private affair. You know, it's your truth. And keep it to yourself. But don't, don't bring it out into the public's, public arena. <coughs> keep it private. No. Truth is truth. And Jesus intends for his truth to be lived out right in front of everybody. Jesus never intended for his moment to be his movement to be relegated to private prayers or personal conviction. The supernatural happened right out in the public square, and the people were forced to either accept it or reject it, but it couldn't be dismissed and sidelined. You had to deal with it. You had to reckon with it. See, there's an undercurrent of thought in our culture right now. And what it is, is a false duality between the material world and the spiritual world. It's basically the idea that everything that's material is evil, and everything spiritual is pure and good. Right? If you've ever heard the, the word Gnostic or Gnosticism, that's actually what kind of underlies that idea. It's the idea that anything in the material world is corrupt and it's evil. And then through secret knowledge, which is what Gnostic means, knowledge, that we escape this material world and return to a pure spiritual state. But there's a real problem with that. And that idea is, has actually invaded the church in many ways. Because, you know, when I, if I would say to you, the goal of the gospel. What did Jesus come for? So that I can go to heaven when I die. Do you see that that attitude, that escape from this world to go to a bodiless existence somewhere, is not really what the gospel is about. What the gospel is about is a renewal of not only you but all creation. The Christian hope is resurrection. We will live in bodies. There'll be resurrected bodies. It'll be part of the new creation. But this this duality that has kind of invaded the church is something that we need to understand. So that we don't follow it into error. Because what does the Bible say that we wrestle with? It's in um, Ephesians 6.12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the Bible is very clear. There are spiritual things. There is wickedness that is spiritual. Not everything that is spiritual is pure. Not everything that is flesh is evil, right? There is spiritual wickedness. When Jesus drove out the demons, when he healed people and ministered to people, they were unclean. They were evil spirits. And even behind some of the diseases that he ministered to were what? Evil, unclean spirits. And Jesus didn't have them just escape their problems by, hell, here, let me give you this secret knowledge and you can meditate your way to some higher plane of existence. No, he was 100% committed to their problems. He had the ability to actually change their physical bodies and minister and change their spiritual part of themselves because he had the authority to do it. He could pray and arms would grow back, tumors would drop off. Do you understand what I'm saying? It wasn't He wasn't trying to get them to escape The physical world. He was there and he was fixing the physical world. Positive thinking wasn't enough for Jesus. He didn't ask them to deny the existence of the problem. He didn't try to give them a secret knowledge that would cause them to escape from the reality of their problems. But instead, he dealt with them. He healed them. He changed them. His miracles were absolutely real. They were not mind games. He would go out, he would feed the hungry, heal their bodies, forgive them of their sins. He could do it all. Do you ever wonder why we're told in First John 4 to test the spirits? Do you ever think of that? Look at that with me. First John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets had gone out into the world. See, just because it's spiritual doesn't make it true. There's lying spirits, there's evil spirits, and they've gone out and they're behind people who are testifying falsely. Verse two, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Why is it so important that the spirit recognize that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? See, that's the thing. We've got to get rid of that false duality. It's not flesh versus spirit. It's good versus evil. It's God versus Satan. You see what I'm saying? See, I think you can see in our country, in our culture, I can't speak for others, but there's kind of two kinds of churches. There's the, there's the church that's, um, they see the life of Jesus and they see Jesus as the great social worker. He's working, he's feeding the poor, he's taking care of people. And then all of a sudden he's killed. And it's like, what a shame. He was just getting started with his social reforms, and they cut him off. And then there's the other church that, you know, if Jesus was just born of a virgin and died on the cross, that would be enough for them. But what about all that stuff in the middle that Jesus was doing? See, what we need to do as a church is we need to grab hold of both and hang on to them. We need to be a supernatural church. We need to go after signs and wonders and and preach the gospel with power. But we also need to hang on to helping the poor and reaching out to those and doing some of those physical things, those physical ministries. We need to hang on to both. We don't want to set up a duality where, oh, don't talk to me about taking care of physical needs because this whole place is going to burn up anyway. We're all going to be floating around in the clouds somewhere. The labor we do here is not in vain. We've got a job to do here. So how great would it be if we can grab both and the work we do? And Michael, I I identify with you because I know what you do with Kiko, and I've done some of that too. When you can do that in the power of the Spirit, now you're holding on to both. Now you're moving forward with the gospel, and you're doing exactly what Jesus did, and you're doing what the church did, and you're not dividing it and letting go of one in favor of the other. We need to hang on to both ends of that spectrum and keep them both. Because Jesus is as committed to helping us physically as he is helping us spiritually. He's committed to this creation because the Christian hope, like I said, is a new creation, a new heaven and earth. We will be living in bodies, resurrected bodies, but God is committed to this. The flesh is not evil in and of himself. If you do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that spirit is not from God. See, just because it's physical doesn't make it evil. Jesus had a physical body. Jesus did not sin, right? What is sinful about the flesh for us when we use the word flesh, I got in my flesh, you know, is Adam's nature. The sinful nature. The word, you know, you have to look at context to know um, when we're talking about the sinful nature or the physical body. But Jesus had a physical body and he was sinless. Why did he come in the physical body? He had to be made like us so he could redeem us, so he could redeem our bodies. And through his death on the cross, he defeated those, the devil who had the power of death. That's uh that's Hebrews, I think 2 4. You'll look it up, tell me if I'm wrong. But we need to hang on to both of these. In fact, our physical body, our physicality is actually made to be a carrier of the Spirit of God. A carrier of His nature. And it's exactly what you see in the opening chapters of the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit came, fulfilled the promise, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. If you didn't have flesh that day in the upper room, you couldn't have received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's very important to have... Flesh, Your flesh is a carrier of the presence and the glory of God. See, Jesus came into a real world filled with real people and real problems. Jesus himself, he got hungry. He got tired. When it rained, he got wet. He needed to wash his feet like everybody else, probably oil his hair. But at the same time, he walked on water. He healed the sick. He raised the dead, multiplied the food. You see how he grabbed onto both? The, the, the idea that John was correcting there, saying Jesus came in the flesh was because there was a belief that was starting as early as that book was written, as early as the Bible, that Jesus just appeared to be in the flesh. He didn't really come in the flesh, and he just appeared to die. It wasn't merely, no, the Bible is so clear. Jesus came into the world, into the flesh. He took on a body, and that body was tortured for our benefit. And if you don't believe that, you're not Christian. That's what the Bible teaches. If you don't believe that, you're outside of what the Bible teaches. And Jesus' followers, think about this lot. They must have smelled like fish. They came to him with all their problems. They fought amongst themselves. It was not a perfect world that Jesus came into. It was not, I have uh a, a object lesson I used to do for kids at Christmas time. And uh, I've got... They're kind of handmade snow globes. You know when you take a snow globe and you shake it up? It's just beautiful. It's just the most pretty picture. You got the houses with all the Christmas trimmings and snow, and it's just beautiful. So I made one like that, and then I made another one. What I put in there was a, a barn with animals and dirt and straw, and you shake that one up. See, that's the world that Jesus came into. It's a broken, messed up world, but he's so committed to our reality That's the world he came into. That's the world he's saved us in. And that's the world we are working in to bring about his kingdom. Don't ever think that Jesus came and was so divine that he didn't actually participate in this world. He 100% is concerned about your condition, both spiritually and physically, because Jesus was 100% God and he is 100% man. And right now, there is a new creation man ascended to the right hand of God, interceding for us. If you ever think of it like that? There is a man in the Godhead. He is that committed. So how in the world can this even happen? How is this possible? It seems like just an absurd thought. But here's why it works. The very first human beings were actually created in the image and in the likeness of God. That makes it possible for Jesus to come in the likeness of man and still be God. The fact that all the fullness of deity could dwell in him in bodily form just shows you the potential that we don't have any clue about in our makeup as human beings. See, we made it about going to heaven when we die, but the Christian hope is the resurrection and the new creation. He's committed To redeeming this world. it's In uh, in Romans 8 there's a verse. All of creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Into the freedom of the glory of children of God. All creation is groaning. Waiting for us to get our act together. And step into this. I think Jesus is. um, Let's see. I lost my place. I'm sorry. There we go. Did I shuffle him around? Uh, okay, very good. Let's go back to um, Acts. Let's pick up in verse seven. Actually, no, back up to, We skip that. Okay. If there, if there, let me say this first. If there is um, a, a dueling aspect that's revealed in the Bible, it's not between the spirit and the flesh. It's actually between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. It's between good and evil, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Look at Colossians 1.13. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you see what happens when somebody gets saved? They are rescued from Satan's dominion. The rule and the authority of Satan who has been ruling this earth. And they are rescued out of that. And they are brought into God's kingdom. When God called Acts, when he met him on that road to Damascus, he told him, I am sending you. This is Acts 26.18. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You see what they're doing, turning from the darkness into the light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. That is the contrast. The duality, if you would say, is not really duality, but that is what we see in the Scriptures revealed. The kingdom of heaven invading this earth and rescuing people from the power of the devil. So, this is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in verse 3, when he's talking to the disciples in Acts 1.3. And he says, He presented himself alive to them after a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then verse 4. And gathering together, he said, commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father has promised, which he said, you heard from me. And verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then from verses 3 to 8, what we see is an the, the idea of the spirit of God coming and the kingdom of heaven advancing, the whole ideas are completely intertwined. And it shouldn't be a surprise because Jesus actually uses the activity of the Holy Spirit to, to demonstrate the fact that the kingdom is here. Do you remember what he said when he was casting out demons and they accused him of casting out demons by the power of the devil? He says, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Spirit of God was proof of the presence of the kingdom of God. Remember what Romans says for the the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but what righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom and the Spirit come together. And they definitely come together in these chapters here in the book of Acts. So they ask him a question. And they say, Lord, verse 6, Acts 1, 6, Is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So what are they asking? They're thinking about a physical piece of land. And right now it's under Roman rule. And they want to know, are they going to get to rule themselves? Right? And Jesus said to them, verse 7, It's not for you to know the periods of time or appointed dates which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest part of the earth. So here's my question: What was Jesus's answer to them? He said, "Is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel?" And Jesus goes off on a, it <laughs> just goes off a whole different direction. So it's not for you to know that, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. I really think Jesus was actually kind of saying yeah, yeah, the kingdom's coming, but it's not exactly in the way that you're thinking. It's not going to be just about this piece of land. Right now, because I'm ascended, I'm going to the Father, I'm talking about my claim on the whole earth. The Spirit and the kingdom advance together. Remember what Jesus said himself, Matthew twenty-four, fourteen: This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world, As a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Acts chapter 9, or verse (laughs) 1, verse 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And after he had said these things, he would lift it up while they were still watching. And a cloud took him up out of their sight. So they're standing here on earth and they're watching him ascend, disappear by a cloud into heaven, to the right hand of the Father. Do you know this? I didn't realize this until I was studying this. In the book of Daniel, he actually saw this event from heaven's perspective. Daniel chapter 7. Listen to it, starting at verse 13. Daniel is seeing these night visions. And if you write it down, look it up, read the vision before. It's really cool about the ancient of days and everything. But starting with verse 13, he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is, kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Does this sound like something to keep personal personal relationship with God on the, in the corner and don't take it out into the streets? No, what's he saying? He says all people, all nations, all language groups should serve him because he is king. And this was the message of the church. Jesus is king. That was the summary. That was the gospel. Jesus is king. So what does this mean for us? How does this impact my life? I mean, this is a great story. How it impacted that early church is they went out knowing this, having seen this, having been filled with the Holy Spirit. They went out and proclaimed everywhere, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. Because of Jesus is king we do what we do the only problem with this this kind of proclamation it uh, back back in the in Corinthians it says it uh, it offended the Jews and it was foolishness to the Greeks you know there are still some religious people today who get offended. And there are still some logical thinkers today who think it's stupid. And the biggest temptation I think we have as Christians is do we alter the message to make it less offensive? Oh, get rid of that blood stuff, get rid of that cross. You know, we nobody likes to hear about sacrifices today. It doesn't make sense. It's offensive, and it doesn't make sense. Don't talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, this don't don't act weird. <laughs> but the problem is. God has somehow ordained that through this simple proclamation of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, that the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts and they get saved. I don't know how it happens, but it's supernatural. If we try to make it less offensive and more appealing to the senses, and we reason you into it and you talk people into it, if no miracle occurs in their heart, then they're not saved. And when hard times come, they fall away. We can't water down the message. We can't shift it to fit the winds of culture. This message was proclaimed all through the book of Acts, and it changed the Roman world. It changed it. It'll work in our world. We need to be true to the gospel message. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, 1.21. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. You see, in the wisdom of the world, the world did not come to know God. It was all they had, the best they had. They were the best thinkers, the best intellect, the best philosophers. I mean, we're talking the Romans, you know, in the tradition of Socrates and Plato, the best thinkers there were. And in their best logic and their best reasoning and their best philosophy, they could not come to know God. It wasn't enough. But this simple message comes across. And it offended their senses. It offended their intellects. But for those who would believe it, they would meet God. I'd take God, wouldn't you? All right, let's wrap this up. Go with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. We'll continue. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was, while he was going, and then behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who had been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have watched him go to heaven. And that's what a bunch of us in church are doing today. We're standing there staring at the sky. We're staring at the, 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 the TV shows and the prophets are telling us when he's coming back. But Jesus said, no, he's coming back the same way. So what's your proper reaction? Go get busy about the kingdom. And don't get me wrong. I like, I like studying some of the prophecy. I listen to different things at different times in my life. I'll be honest with you. Um, back when they were saying that Y2K was the end and it didn't happen, I didn't really watch much of that after that. It was Y2K the end and it was all set up that it was going to be a big thing and Jesus was going to come back in I think 2018 or something like that, you know. And I, he's coming back. He's absolutely coming back. But what's my proper response? Yeah, look into those things if you want to study the scriptures more than anything, but be busy about the Father's business. Be busy about the kingdom business. Let this kingdom advance into the world because that's what the Bible actually says is going to happen before the end. You want to know what the signs of the kingdom is? Look at where the gospel is going to. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all nations as a witness to them. Then the end shall come. You know, we talk about earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars because of those verses. But you know, if you actually read that verse carefully, those are not signs of the end. Those are actually signs of not the end. Think about it. He says there will be earthquakes and rumors of wars and in various places and famines And he says, what? next line is, but this is not yet the end. So those would be signs of not yet the end, wouldn't they? Those things are going to happen. The sign of the end is uh, when the gospel is preached to all the nations. Amen? Amen? So here's what it's going to be. He is coming. Here's how Jesus describes it. Immediately. Matthew 24, verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky, just like he left, with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet blast. A trumpet blast, that'd be a good indication of the end when you hear that. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Let me ask you this, when it happens, what do you want to be found doing? Keeping watch, being ready, doing the work of the kingdom. Amen? That's pretty good. Father, I thank you for this opportunity just to open up the word, to, to look at the foundations of the book of Acts. Lord, as we go forward, please open our understanding so that we can not just learn about what happened historically, not just learn about how the book is written, but that through this study and through these scriptures, we can actually meet with you, that we can grow in our relationship with you. Father, take us there as a group, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.